Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone. I'm Sibi Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I'm speaking with Charles Todd about A Cruel Deception, the latest of their many novels set during and not long after World War I. This book is the tenth in a series featuring Sister Bess Crawford, a British nurse, but you'll also hear us talking about a second series centered on Detective Ian Rutledge, which I also love. But this novel is about Bess, so let's start with her. England, late March, 1919. I was changing the surgical dressing on a patient in Ward 3 when Matron sent for me. For some weeks now, I'd been posted to a clinic in Wiltshire for surgical cases like this abdomen. A piece of shrapnel missed in earlier surgeries had worked its way into the colon and caused a massive infection. Sergeant Higgins had been recovering well when this happened, but Dr. Johnson had done a marvelous piece of surgery to locate a source of the infection. It had almost been too late. Another few hours and the infection would have spread to the abdominal lining. I finished what I was doing, smiled at the drowsy sergeant, and handed my patient over to Sister Newman. That should do for now, I said, and went to wash my hands before going down to Matron's tiny ground floor office. She was writing a letter when I knocked, and I stood quietly by the door until she'd finished it. When she did look up, she frowned, and I felt suddenly like a schoolgirl who'd been caught in some mischief. As far as I knew, I'd done nothing wrong, but her frown had the power to make a saint feel guilty. It was one of her best weapons against carelessness and stupid mistakes. You've had a remarkable career until now, Sister Crawford, she began. Have you given any thought to the future? Oh, dear. And now, please join me in welcoming Charles Todd. Hi, Charles and Caroline. I look forward to talking with you today. Oh, we're very happy to be here. You make no secret of being a mother-son team. Uh, Obviously, you're very successful, which impresses me, because much as I love my son, I can't imagine writing a novel with him. So what made you decide to write as a pair? And having decided, how do you tackle a new book? Well, we have always been mystery fans. I mean, even from the books being read to us as children. And we are both history buffs. So one day we wondered if we could actually write a mystery. Uh, um, and of course, since history is, you know, our favorite period, uh, it was natural to choose the past as our, our, our time frame. It, it seemed to work well with, with both the mystery and the idea of uh, neophyte writers. Well, we, we wanted it to be an accessible past, one closer to our time and pertinent to our time. Uh, we didn't want to go back where it was Middle English and bespoke, et cetera. So no one was writing about the Great War, and it was a period with ramifications for the future. So uh, we decided to give it a try. And as it turned out, we found it was a time that resonated us with us, which was a good thing, uh, some 30 books later. <laughs> as for, uh, for how we write together, tackling a book, we learned early on um, 
that what one of us knew, the other one had to know, whether it's about characters or or some aspect of the period or uh, working through an action scene. So what we discovered was that we were likely to get off on a tangent uh, that the other person couldn't follow. And this this presented problems. I mean, there was no um, collaboration for dummies available, and we were trying to find our way. That decided we uh, talked over every aspect of the writing before word goes on paper, and then we work out every scene together, putting down what we feel is the best approach. Sometimes one of us will test an idea, and if it works, we go with it, and if it doesn't, we move on. It's Actually, I think of books as a movie in the mind and trying to capture what each of us sees. That's very interesting. So in addition to the series, which we're going to get to in just a minute, you have two standalone novels as well, The Murder Stone and The Walnut Tree. Uh, where do they stand within the corpus of your writing? Are they also World War One? Yes. Um, we had written a, a few Rutledges, and through our research, we decided that um, we wanted to take a closer look at what women were doing during the war, what happened to these women who were left behind once their, their men walked off to war. And that led us to Francesca, the, the character in, in the standalone. Um, she suddenly finds herself not only inheriting her, her grandfather's estate, but also inheriting his enemies. And um, it, it was very interesting to see this period through the eyes of a woman. She, she finds herself in love with two men on different um, sides of the, the channel, and she can't save one of them. It, it, it was a novella, and it was fun to write, but it showed what was to come when, when the war that was expected to, to end by Christmas uh, dragged on for four long, bloody years and what women were, were subjected to without any warning, any preparation. Really, and that really encompasses both books, uh, The Walnut Tree and uh, The Murder Stone, but uh, it, it was an excellent opportunity for us not only to look at it from a women's point of view, but uh, it was a society in the midst of change. Uh, the roles of women had been very strictly defined during the Victorian period, and yet during World War One, so many women were thrust into situations like Francesa, and uh, that had to cope with unexpected situations that they were completely unprepared for. And also, in, in terms of their avocation, women were driving trucks. They were doing all kinds of working in factories, things that any time before then would have been uh, totally outside socially acceptable behavior for women. And uh, it brought about a, a great deal of change in English society. And that was the walnut tree. I see. Um, yes, I, I think 
people have started to rediscover World War One because of the centennial. But I, certainly, when you started these books, nobody wrote about World War One. It was all World War Two. Yes, that's right. I really like to to read it. Mm-hmm. They didn't write about World War One, and they didn't write uh, much about PTSD because <clears throat> that was long before nine eleven, and uh, the whole concept of of shell shock and how it was perceived by society through time uh, was was not something that people talked about a great deal. It kind of took us by surprise when uh, they got the attention that it did. Absolutely. Which segues beautifully into Ian Rutledge. Uh, I'm going to ask about him before we get to best because he's where I first discovered you. And I was, you know, <laughs> if you're a reader, the best thing is to find a series that already has a whole bunch of books. I just haven't had time to go back and read them all, but I promise I will. So um, <laughs> the first one I found was The Black Ascot. Um, and... Uh, I've actually now I have the advanced review copy of the next one, A Divided Loyalty, on my desk, um, which I'm looking forward to. So tell us a little bit about Ian, who definitely does suffer from shell shock, among other things. Well, there were several things we were looking for. We wanted a man, basically, who had seen both sides of killing, murder and the war. And we were interested in what this might do to him as a person. Um and it was important to explore this as, as a man from book to book to book. Um, shell shock, as you mentioned, was one of the nasty little secrets of the Great War. And we wanted to, to talk about that. Um, so that's when Ian Rutledge was born. He himself came up with a shell shock because he couldn't go back to the yard if he had come out of the trenches terribly wounded. So. Here he is in 1914, a new inspector at Scotland Yard. He has a very promising career, and he's engaged to marry. And like many men of his age, he still decides to go in to, 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 um, to join the army. He's sent to the trenches, and they nearly destroy him. And coping with that has, has in a way, become both his, his torment and, and his strength. And he's English, a man of honor with the strong code of ethics of his generation. He's a university man, but he wants to be a policeman and really defies his family to join the Met. But the Yard is only just bringing in educated men, and it brings about a conflict between the old guard who came up through the ranks and these college-educated newcomers that seem to be skipping steps uh, that they had fought so hard to climb. And it, it makes for a difficult time, and Rutledge, who sometimes sees more deeply into a case, has to fight for what he believes to be the truth. And it's a challenge to write, but it's one we enjoy. And you do it very well. Um Yes, it's hard to remember that being a policeman, especially a detective, was not always a high-status thing, um, especially in England. That's right. And, and as the old guard, who were mainly blue-collar, found themselves replaced by men who could move in society with greater ease, then, then it was 
um, hard to accept. You know, I've done all of this, and here you come with a university degree, and you think you can do better. Show me. Oh, a very natural response. <laughs> so tell us about Bess. <laughs> Who is Bess at the moment that we meet her in um, A Cruel Deception? Well, she's also English. Uh, she grew up wherever her father was posted because he was a career military officer. And much of her use was spent in India. Um, it's never, at that time, was never a, a really safe posting. And so she learns early on how the Army works, how to protect herself from danger, what duty and responsibility and the honor of the regiment mean. Um, it was a very different upbringing, and it was part of what prepared her to, to be able to be, um, um, <laughs> a word we hate, a sleuth, but uh, someone who gets involved in, in things that a Victorian young woman might never come across. So when, when the Great War begins, she can't fight as, as a son might, but she is driven by the sense of honor and duty to join a military service and uh, save lives in the course of her duties. Um, and there are often matters where she's called upon to deal with situations beyond her nursing skills. And she, because of this upbringing and her background, she has both the courage and the grasp of the situation to find the answers. And this gave us a chance to see the war from both a woman's point of view and some of the interesting sidelights, like an aid station winding up in German hands or realizing that the influenza, it, among the influenza dead, there's a body that didn't die of the flu. And in this particular case, the war has officially ended. Um, and Bess is still nursing. Um, but she can envision the possibility of change, and she's not completely sure that she likes it. Well, um, Francesca and the Murder Stone was really a one book um, story. It, it, it didn't lend itself to a series, but it intrigued us because it, it showed us the role that women took on in the war. And we wanted to go into that further with a, a character who was deeply involved both in the war itself and in the home front. Um, Beth was well suited to this. I mean, she's the kind of woman we find it a pleasure to, to write. And um, she has a sense of humor, that sense of duty. And then from her nursing, uh, a very clear, objective view of what she's getting into and then has to get out of. <laughs> yes, yeah, she, she's a very likable character. I mean, I really enjoyed her. Um, what made you decide yeah, to tell this Bess particular is, story? Well, I was going to say, Bess is young, but she puts her personal life aside to go into nursing. And it's only one of the jobs women took at the time, but this is a mystery series, of course. And so her class, in quotes, have to do with the war, a severe explosion in a munitions plant, a sinking of the Britannic, whatever. Uh, they add realistic aspects of her life and her work 
that's, we hope, intriguing for the reader at the same time. Well, I certainly found this situation in A Cruel Deception interesting. Um, you know, it's not a classic murder mystery. It's rather uh, a genuine mystery in the sense that you don't know what's going on. And we're not going to talk about what's going on except in the most general ways because we want people to read it. But what is going on <laughs> at the one... beginning of A Cruel Deception? <laughs> um, well, um, she's a very good nurse and she finds satisfaction in, in this. So um, when the war is over, she wants to keep on working with the wounded who will never go home. Uh, she sees that very clearly that that these are men who will, with time, being forgotten, and and that the, there will be a need for nurses for a very long time to come. And that dealing with uh, gallbladders and kidney stones isn't really her future, and yet going home as her parents' daughter and fitting into that role again isn't what she wants either. She's taken responsibility for human lives and she's not really uh, ready to settle into a quote-unquote quiet life. And does she see this kind of long-term nursing as a quiet life? Well, the problem with this is that the Queen Alexandra's, like the other nursing services, started out with a small group of women, and when the war came, they expanded to about 8,000 nurses uh, in the various um, campaigns. But with the war over, what are they going to do with all these nurses? And they will ask some to teach. Um, some will be dismissed who, women who have resources, a family, money of their own, whatever. And some will be kept on. I think they went from 8,000 to about 300. So Beth realizes that, that this is going to, to, um, uh, come up in her career, and yet she wants to, to keep doing what she's doing. I see. So, so it's the prospect of being laid off, in effect, that worries her most. Well, exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of the women, most of the women in the Queen Alexandra's were upper-class young women, or certainly um, uh, upper-middle-class. And these women may need a job <laughs> in the future, but they are not as desperate as, as some of the others who, who need to make a career of this in order to survive. So she is summoned to London, and her initial expectation is that, in effect, she's going to be invited to leave. Um, but instead, she's sent to Paris. And what is she supposed to do in Paris? Well, she's asked to find out what's wrong with the son of one of the heads of the Queen Alexandra. He's been assigned to the peace talks going on in Paris, but he's dropped out of sight. And although he's recovered from the shoulder wound that he received in the last days of the war, there's a possibility that the heavy painkillers he's been given have led to addiction. This happened more often than is, is recorded, but this would end his career in the army. And Bess, is, Bess is, um, is trained. She's a nurse. She's discreet. And Matron has known her, her parents, which is a, a recommendation 
in itself to assign her to a quiet mission. She um, is sent to stay with a Dr. Moreau and his wife. Um, could you give us a brief sketch of them and uh, how they fit into the story? Well, the doctor and his wife have known Matron Helena Minton for many years. They will help her son if he's an addict without reporting him to his regiment because this could be a career ender for him. But uh, they've also lost their only son in the war, and their understanding of and compassion for Lawrence himself is in a way a part of their healing process. Uh, Best is expected to stay with them as the base of where she will work from in Paris, but uh, circumstances have a way of unexpectedly changing things, don't they? (laughs) Especially in a mystery story, yes. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Or a novel at all, actually. If you don't shake things up, what's going to change? Absolutely. So you have um, one very relevant uh, present-day concern, uh, which is the addiction. Um, But the other thing I was thinking about as Charles was talking is it's hard to... I think it's hard for modern-day Americans to imagine how pervasive the effects of the war were, especially in France and Britain, where almost everybody had lost somebody. And you just mentioned, you know, that Dr. Moreau and his wife have lost their son, but almost all the characters have lost close, um, you know, fiancés or brothers or husbands or fathers in the war. Yeah, um, I remember specifically... uh, we were in a small village in England and we walked into the bell tower in front of the church and we were looking up at the names that had been carved into the walls of the sides of the bell tower and we're reading up and we realize even though they're getting further away and it's getting darker as you go up higher, you can still tell that the names keep on going up. And the other thing that we noticed uh, in that was how many of them all had the same last name. And it it really brought home the fact that in in such a brief period of time, uh, all the men of military age and an entire family had been wiped out. I mean, you think in terms of wars nowadays that are mostly fought at at distances, but on the first day of the Somme Offensive in 1916, July 1st, um, there were 20,000 casualties on the British side. And there were so many men wounded that the doctors had to go among them and decide, this man I can save, this man I must let go. And it must have been horrific. I mean, you you see your your best friend blown apart. You you see someone whose leg is missing or whose head is missing. This is a, a traumatic situation. This is something that leaves scars. Uh, most of the people at home didn't know how their loved ones died. The army just said in their letters that he had died bravely. Uh, and we forget that. 
these regiments were made up of people from the same geographical area. So you, you might have the, the Wilshire Yeomanry or the uh, Cumbrian uh, Infantry. These are all people from the same area. So as they're fighting together, they know each other. They have tasks together. So it's not like some guy you met at basic training and don't know very well. And so in, in the long run, they, they become very close. I mean, war makes brothers. And I, I firmly believe that. Which just makes it harder. And it, it affects Bess as well, because I was just reading another novel um, about the situation for women after the war, that there, there were no men in their age group you know they could in an age when it was still considered important for women to marry and have children um as their sort of primary thing to do there was no one to marry no it was their social status i mean you you became the spinster of the family the one who looked after the sick parents or grandmother the one who helped with the children when a woman was uh, expecting again the the sort of thing that that uh, you know they became governesses where they could, but even that work was was um, disappearing. These women had nowhere to go, and you look at some of the genealogies of the period and and how many women never married, and and these are not only uh, the women but the unborn children who would have made the next generation. And it's another reason why Bess wants to stay in nursing, because it's not like she can just go home and... Well, she could, but I think Bess, Bess has changed with the war, just like everybody else. And it's hard to put the horse back into the barn after it's, it's tasted the grass. I mean, it's, um, women had been able to do things, to go out of the home, find themselves, even working in munitions family, um, factories, they had a status. They had something to be proud of. And then they're told to go back and do the dishes and, and clean the house and, and take a place that, that's changed so much that um, it's hard for them to accept. And most of them had to do it. Uh, the same thing happened after World War II, for that matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it did. Um, we hear about it more in World War II, but yes, uh, the the big change was really World War One. Absolutely. Let's talk a little bit about Paris itself in 1919. What was the city like right after the war? <laughs> well, Paris had been a target for the Germans in in the 1870s, and she came very close to being captured in in World War One. Um, she survived through a rather tenacious will to survive. The people who stayed in Paris were determined to, to keep her free. Um, they also had a, a sense of style and aplomb. Women in Paris at, during the war would still try to wear their satins and laces, but they would cut them in a military style to show their support for the war. And even in restaurants where the food was so gray, you couldn't 
tell what the meat was, they still went out and, and dined out. Um, they were trying to to carry on in a way that London was not. London was rather dour, rather um, grim, and 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 um, uh, the effects of the war were more easily seen. But um, designers of women's dresses began designing uniforms for the new troops. They designed uniforms for the flyers. They helped with the camouflage. I mean, it's just a fascinating time to look back to. You can only use so much in a novel, but exploring it was just fascinating. Um, then the, the peace treaty comes along, and Paris is flooded with everybody. Um, the French delegations want revenge. The, the British are trying to temper that and still get their own way. Uh, Wilson comes in for the Americans with his peace plan and new ideas for the treaty, and tensions are are high because all of this is going on at a time that was supposed to show results. Um, we didn't, the peace treaty wasn't um, uh, brought together as a, a document until June of that year. Um, but despite all of this, uh, Bess soon heads out of the city. Tell us a bit about what she finds outside of Paris. Well, Bess finds him in the home of a young woman whose family is indebted to Lawrence for saving their father's life. And Lawrence reeks of drugs, and his behavior is far from that of a young officer who had been set on a career in the Army. In fact, uh, he calls Bess a spy for his mother and tells her that oblivion is his goal and she can't stop him. It's very typical of that type of addiction of, uh, you know, I'm not hurting anybody else by hurting myself. It's it almost a, a self-centered perspective, but he, he's got his heart set on just blotting everything out and, and basically semi-suicidal. And he's staying with a young woman, Marina Lasalle, uh, who in fact owns the house. Um, what's her story? Marina is a teacher in a uh, private school for girls, and she's uh, taken leave to get Lawrence out of Paris before his regiment sees what's happened to him. Uh, unfortunately, there's little money, and she had to let the staff go. It's a struggle to provide coal, much less food, and she's pretty much at her wit's end when Beth arrives. But um, because of the family's strong feeling of indebtedness to Lawrence, it forces her to make excuses for him and try to take care of him, even though the the struggle is nearly beyond her. And yet, uh, she feels guilty when. Bess begins to take charge, but uh, even Bess is challenged by the situation. Yes, there's nowhere she can turn for help. Um, if she goes to her father, who's in the army, um, a report will get back to his his regiment. If she goes to her uh, to his mother in London, what can her mother do? Or his mother do that she can't do on the scene. Um, it really throws her on 
back on her own resources as a person and her ability to see a situation and work her way through it. Um, first of all, why is he addicted? Secondly, what is it he's trying to, to hide from in his own life? And she's quite firm with him. She doesn't put up with all of his nonsense <laughs> at all. Well, that's, that's what the nurses did in the, in the hospitals. Um, they had to be very strict with this, these men. And nurses in the Queen Alexandra's had military rank to give their orders more clout. I mean, she, this was a protection for them. But um, Beth falls back on this, this strictness that uh, uh, quite often in, in the hospital got results. So I don't think we can go too much farther into the book uh, before we start to give away things that you probably don't want to give away. But I did want to mention that one of the things I really like, both about the Black Ascot um, and this one, is that the secondary characters are also fully worked out. Um, a couple of my favorites in this book were Captain Jackson and Bess's father, whom she refers to as the Colonel Saib, which is just wonderful. But <laughs> can you tell us a little bit about them? Well, we have found that secondary characters have to be as real as the primary ones because if you aren't careful, the story can lose its vitality. These people become puppets or, or cardboard cutouts. Um, Captain Jackson is, is a, a case in point. He, he came to France with the Lafayette Escadrille long before America entered the war. And he was with other pilots who wanted to do their bit, but mostly they wanted to fly. And now that the war is over, he's lingering in France because there's not much chance for, for flying at home in New Mexico. Bess is suspicious of his offers to help her um, because she's never seen him before. But, you know, she might just be right about him. The problem is, never in a million years would she guess why her suspicions are aroused? Uh, during his service in India, Beth's father was called Colonel Saeed by his own men, uh, the local people and the house servants. It was a term of respect, and Beth and his mother had picked up the nickname and used it as a fun but loving family joke. Uh, but it, it defines him his career, and uh, his character. So um, is there anything I haven't asked you that you would like to talk about? So I think everyone loves Beth for a very good reason. Um, she's a strong person, and yet she's vulnerable at times. Uh, she has a strong sense of duty, and it's that and, and her tenacity and her training that that give her the courage to finish what she starts. Um, she doesn't um, turn to the nearest strong man and say, help. She has to figure it out for herself because there's no one else to, to do it for her. They may give some assistance, but in the end it's up to what she has seen and what she knows about the situation. And she, uh, no, she never had the confining Victorian upbringing of girls of her age. So she's a hint of a modern woman to come. She drives. She knows how to handle 
guns and things like that. She didn't need to go to war, but she felt it was her duty. And as she faces her future, not knowing what lies ahead of her, she has choices to make. But uh, once again, Bess is not one for the quiet life. And uh, coming soon, a uh, wedding in Ireland involves her in the troubles there. I look forward to that one. So do you still need to research your novels? Or after 30, do you have World War down, one down to a, a fine... Uh... And science. <laughs> science, yes. Well, there's always research to be done. You, you, you can't rest on your laurels, so to speak. Um, every setting is different. Aspects of the war will come in in different ways. Society is changing. Um, these are always you know, a challenge. Uh, we go to England every year to walk the streets and um, whatever village we, we're thinking about using. Um, uh, we look for a story that works with that individual village or part of the country. Um, and we want to take the story in new directions, not just the same old, same old. So we're looking for something that will bring the war and the uh, life in England or what's happening in France into the story in a very natural way. Um, it's, it's, it's a challenge, but it's, it's also a great deal of fun to, to use all of this material in different ways in each book and, and still keep the freshness of, of what's happening. I want you to know, I, uh, it was a great personal sacrifice working on this book that I had to go spend a week in Paris in May. It was uh, rough duty, <laughs> but you know I persevered. That was uh, a noble sacrifice. <laughs> yes, it oh, was. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, we love research. There, there are always new nuggets that we find in the oddest places and. Some of our readers actually send us fascinating information about their relatives who served in World War One and other interesting things that they come across. Uh, the fact that we've already learned so much about the period is, is really the, only the beginning to get it right, which is what is so important to us. We have to check every detail. Uh, for example, we wanted to name the pilot Captain Chapman. Then we read the list of the real escadrille pirate pilots. And there was a man from Connecticut by the name of Chapman. So we had to give our captain a different name. <laughs> you never know what will crop up. So you normally at this point, I ask my guests what they'd like readers to take away from the novel. And it's an open-ended question. I, it mostly gets at issues of theme or meaning, but um, it can also be, you know, I just want them to have a good time. Uh, does it apply, do you think, to a mystery novel like A Cruel Deception? Um, there's always a theme of some sort in the, the Rutledge books. I mean, we... we talk about an idea before we get into the writing. But in this book particularly, a lot of people think that the armistice on November 11th, 1918, ended the war. 
It only ended the fighting. And so in order to finish this, this arc of Bess as a battlefield nurse, it was important to remind people that a peace treaty hadn't been written and that it took them quite a long time to agree on, uh, on all the terms of that. But also the undercurrent in all of this is that um, the war will go on reaching out and touching lives even years later, and that those who actually survived it uh, won't be able to put it behind them. And we've seen this in, in so many people who, whose families have uh, had, had served in the war. Uh, in one way or another, there is a, um, a very strong tendency to look back and to try to understand and you see that clearly in the Rutledge books, which are two years ahead of the best series. A Cruel Deception is a story of delayed revenge. and But it's also about the tricks the mind plays in times of great horror or stress and how that can twist the truth. How one man's mistake can trigger another man's guilt. It, for us, it was a, a real challenge to tell this story. Are you uh, already working on a new novel? Well, we have the latest Rutledge coming out in February. Right. And we're already at work on the next Rutledge and the next Beth. Well, Beth and Rutledge are such different characters with such different stories that as we finish one series, our thoughts are already moving towards the other series. and. To make life more interesting, in between we write a lot of mystery short stories for anthologies and magazines. I think we egg each other on or commit each <laughs> other to stuff. <laughs> Why didn't you commit to that? Well, thank you so much for sparing time to talk with me. It's been a great pleasure. It's been our thank pleasure, you. too. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I am C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books and Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I've been talking with Charles Todd about A Cruel Deception and other novels. Find out more about them at www.charlestodd.com. If you enjoyed today's podcast and would like to discuss it further with me and other New Books Network listeners, please join us on Shuffle. Shuffle is an ad-free, invite-only network focused on the creative community. As NBN listeners, you can get special access to conversations with a dynamic community of writers and literary enthusiasts. Sign up by going to www.shuffle.do slash nbn slash join. Like us on Facebook, search for NB Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at New Books Histvik. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can find out more about me and my books at www.cplesley.com where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about historical fiction on the New Books Network.